how much better can AJ get compared to how much exactly. better can Usyk get? Exactly. The amount that the, the temperature will play in strategy mm. shouldn't be underestimated. And they've learned how to cope with the demands of what Usyk brings. If it's to the body, there's going to be more contribution from the core and lower body. Mm. But because he's boxing a southpaw, he has to try and come mm. over the top. So that will have a different physiological mm. implication as well. Before we went into all this, I was thinking Usyk. But I'm more favoured now towards AJ before we, we looked at it. Hello everybody, welcome to Boxing Science. In this video, we're going to be breaking down the science behind the much anticipated rematch, Usyk versus Joshua. Before we crack on with the scientific breakdown on the punch stats, the tactics, and also uh, the implications of being in Saudi Arabia in terms of the heat, just want you to do us, do us a quick favor, leave your predictions in the comment box below and let's see whether the scientific breakdown sways your prediction, whether you're going to go for the revenge of Anthony Joshua or is it going to be a repeat win from Alexander Usyk. We've got Dr. Heat himself, Alan, <laughs> Dr. Alan Ruddock, who's a specialist in heat training and heat acclimation. Uh, Alan, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. We've got some interesting stats and numbers and some implications, or maybe not as yeah. well. Cool. So, like, we start, we were doing these quite a lot, weren't we, uh, back in the day, um, <laughs> analysing the big fights. Uh, I remember doing one on um, Gross versus Eubank um, and a lot of the AJ fights as well because yeah. obviously that brought a lot of interest. Um, and we talked a lot about kind of the punch stats of AJ, the, the, the weight and what his opponent brings as well. So we've got a backlog of data yeah. and also we've been looking at some of the data as well with uh, with the last fight so in this in this video we're going to be looking at some data we're not going to be going too technical because we're not the people to talk about it uh, punch stats aren't everything uh, but it does have an implication on the, the physical performance and you know a lot of people have been talking about AJ's weight Usyk's weight um, the pace of the last fight the heat of, of Saudi Arabia in the summer so these are some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to start off with a, with a big one, really. And, you know, towards the back end of the fight, AJ looked physically tired. And he has done before, and people have criticised his gas tank. But that fight was at such a high pace. Um, Usyk has been known to mentally fatigue and physically fatigue his, uh, his opponent's. It seemed like AJ at the end really just literally was hanging off the ropes and when he got into the corner was just so physically tired. And, you know, a lot of people criticise his gas tank, but actually when you look at the stats, AJ threw a massive 641 punches in that fight, which is nearly double of what he's thrown yeah. previously in 11 and 12 round fights. Yeah. So that's a much, much higher pace than what he's normally done before. Um, just before I throw it over to you, uh, Alan, because um, obviously he's only gone 11 and 12 rounds a handful of times compared his punch stats per round for his world championship fights excluding Charles Martin because that was just a two round job and not many, not much data to go off um, he normally throws 36 punches per round to land 12 giving him a 34% connection ratio uh, against Usyk he threw 53 to land 10 and so it's a much higher uh, average in terms of thrown. Uh, that's 33%. Mm. Landing is landing 24% less. 
So his kind of his connection ratio has gone from 34% down to 19%. Now, from a physiological standpoint, it's done pretty well to go the 12 rounds. Absolutely. That is, I couldn't believe it when you said he he's thrown double what he had done before. And what was the fight? What was in second place? Uh, second second place, oh, Dillian White. Against in, Dillian White? Yeah, and I yeah, couldn't believe that. Seven, was... In seven rounds, 2015, British title fight. When you told me that again. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, unbelievable. So, yeah, although he was, you know, you know, really really tired and there could be a number of, of, of physical and psychological factors for that you know people do question his fitness but actually when you look at the the punch stats and we, we do have to say that we don't know exactly how the punch stat data collectors yeah so this define is based, a punch this space off compu box yeah some people love it some people love it yeah when i actually watched the fight uh watch the fight back along with the stats I think a lot was down to like the, more more the feints. Yeah. Um, I compared it with the Klitschko fight where AJ wasn't throwing many feints, yeah. keeping his quite tight guard. Whereas on this one is uh, with Usyk in the first match, he's popping out that jab quite a lot, mm. and actually his, his jabs have gone up by uh, like two point five or three times more than what his average is. Yeah. Savage sits around about 150, 170 jabs per fight. He threw 450 yeah. in that fight. So constant and, and with a southpaw, sorry, I said that I weren't going to go too technical, <laughs> but but you need to throw out that kind of jab to try and get that range. Yeah. And with Usyk just kind of moving around, yeah. it's probably throwing that jab out a yeah. little bit more. Even though then he's not loading up on it, just that activity will yeah. increase kind of the cardiovascular demands. It will do, yeah. What we can't tell is from the numbers is the intent the punch the intensity mm -hmm. of the punch as well but also what happens before that that punch yeah. what happens before the jab in terms of footwork and movement what happens afterwards yeah and they all have physical qualities that have an imposed physical demand as well so it's not just simply looking at it as a as a as a single symbol jab mm. is it just mm. just popping out there and, yeah. and saying that is a you know there's a physical cost to just that action only it's everything else that comes yeah. with it as well like yes. you say he's trying to get into trying to find that range yeah and so he's stepping he'll be trying to step in forward yeah and also an energy demand as the well. direction mm -hmm. of that jab as well mm. if it's to the if it's to the body mm. there's going to be more contribution from the core and lower body mm. but because he's boxing a southpaw he has to try and come mm. over the top doesn't yeah, it because yeah. Usyk shorter is coming un underneath yeah, yeah. so that will have a different physiological mm. implication as well you know on the, on the shoulder yeah. and, where, and where he's throwing that so it, it doesn't give us the whole picture but it does give us some indication of <clears throat> what we saw at the end of the fight when he was visibly extremely fatigued mm. and, and Usyk was able to, to step up yeah. On there, and I think Usyk's power punches in those last couple yeah. of rounds were, were increased when he went for when we went for the finish. And you were talking about kind of what was happening. Uh, Usyk spent a lot of time on the back foot, making him punch out of range, and that's something that he did to Tony Bellew and done with a lot of uh, his opponents mm. is stepping in and out of range, making people overreach. That obviously increases energy demand. Um, Usyk will land in a lot of body shots as well, mm. um, so that will obviously take a lot out. But when you think about like in training camp, you've got to prepare for that pacing. And I don't think that 
anybody will have brought that out. It don't matter how many sprints that you do or air bike sessions or circuits, um, heavy bag sessions. When you're actually in the ring, you've got to get used to that that pace and that intensity. Usyk seems to bring that out of people a lot more. Um, looking at Usyk's um, punch stats, even though he won the fight, he threw less. He threw uh, 529 punches compared to AJ's 641, so over 100 less. Uh, he landed 25 more uh, than uh, AJ, and he landed 28% of his punches, which is okay, okay, okay so yeah, it's, it's all right, it's but okay. it's showing that it's probably fainting. Yeah. Let's talk about, like, it was a really high pace because if you look at the amount of punches that was thrown, 529 on Usyk, 641 on AJ. To put that in perspective, the grueling fight between Fury and Wilder, the third one, that accumulated into 740 punches together Total. in 11 rounds versus... Um, 1164 in AJ versus Usyk one so that shows you that really high pace set for heavyweight boxing yeah. now why is that so physically demanding for a heavyweight boxer to maintain that high pace well every action for a heavyweight comes at a metabolic cost and because they're so predominantly muscular it means that they're weighted more towards anaerobic type energy demand rather than aerobic type. Clearly, a heavyweight can't run as fast as, yeah. you know, or can't perform at the, the same kind of aerobic intensity as a, as a flyweight can. And so each one of those actions has a disproportionate demand on their aerobic system mm -hmm. compared to a, a flyweight. In effect, they are, and we've talked about this quite a lot, is they're more economical. Yeah. So the, ener the energy cost of those actions is a lot less for lighter athletes. So when you're a heavyweight, it means you have to be quite selective in the shots that you throw in because you know it's going to have a big energy demand yeah. on the tall energy demand of, of that particular round before you can then recover when we come to talk on about the implications of heat, mm. we, can, we can delve into that in a little bit more detail. But essentially that is why is that, you know, boxing is a, it's a high intensity intermittent sport with a large demand on the aerobic energy system. But when you've got these athletes that are predominantly anaerobic in their uh, actions, it places a huge demand on that cardiovascular system. Mm. And that's why we see heavyweights visibly more fatigued than how, we do. How can a heavyweight boxer prepare for that then from a strength condition point of view? In, their, in terms of their fitness, they need to be able to deal with the, the acidosis that comes with those more anaerobic type demands. Mm -hmm. So because their aerobic system can't support their energy demands as well, mm -hmm. it means that they, they build up a lot of, of acidosis and that makes the cellular environment more difficult for them to produce neuromuscular action, which has you know implications for force production. So heavyweights have to be able to deal with mm -hmm. that acidosis in order mm -hmm. to maintain their strength, mm -hmm. which is to produce high forces. Mm -hmm. Now, in S&C, especially mm -hmm. in conditioning, we can train to improve 
the ability to deal with that acidosis. And we do that through what we call muscle buffer training. Mm -hmm. So we will use a blood lactate analyzer to give us an indication of the, the level of acidosis. It doesn't give us the whole picture, but it does give us an indication of the level of acidosis that an athlete is experiencing at any point in time in their training. And what we like to do is, is get the athletes working to such an intensity that induces moderate to high levels of blood lactate mm. concentration. And we can then say, okay, so we know that the muscle is under significant amount of uh, cellular strain. Mm. And what happens over time is that if you repeat this type of muscle buffer training is that you get an adaptation in what we call muscle buffers. So you can think of these as, as mops that go around and mopping up these uh, metabolites that cause that acidosis. So it's it, one of the misconceptions. And if we put this out during the, the, if you're watching the athletics in the Commonwealth Games or the European Championships that are coming up, you'll hear commentators giving blood lactate and lactic acid a bad name. Yeah. It, they, that does not cause fatigue. Actually, yeah. lactate is a really important um, metabolite. Yeah. It's a cell signaling uh, molecule. It's a fuel source. It doesn't cause cramp. It doesn't cause fatigue. It doesn't cause DOMS mm. or any of the bad names that the commentator is going to yeah. give it. Um, or the, you know, the lactate is flushing, you know, mm. you know, and they need to go for a recovery to flush out like all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's nonsense. Yeah. Um, we use it as a, as a marker. <clears throat> so lactate is not one of the things that cause fatigue, but it's the hydrogen ions that come along with mm -hmm. this high intensity actions that, that causes fatigue. So in the gym, when we're training an athlete at these high to moderate level, uh, moderate to high levels of, of acidosis. We're training these buffers that essentially come in and mop up these metabolites. And it enables the athlete then to continue what they want to do, which is to perform at high intensity and produce high intensity actions. So there's a couple of classic ways in, mm. in which we do this. Um, and we can do it on the air bike, we do it on the curve, um, on the watt bike. Mm is a hard two minute interval. And after each interval or every other interval, we'll be taking a lactate assessment. And what we want is that in that interval to be of sufficient intensity, not completely fatiguing, but of sufficient intensity to raise that lactate value to it's quite similar value of what amateur boxers would experience from what we know from the mm. This, the scientific literature. So it becomes a fairly specific training modality as well as being a specific training modality to improve physiological adaptations. Um, and another way we can do it is we've, we've almost repeated sprints. So another yeah. session that we'll do is 12, uh, 12 seconds on, 48 seconds off, repeated anywhere from 15 to, yeah. to 20 times. And you can get off. really fast adaptations from that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, anything anything that is peripherally focused. Yeah. So the primary adaptations is at the the muscle level here. Yeah. Anything that is peripheral, generally get a, a very fast adaptation. Cool. In. Yeah, I need you to explain this to Fabio Wardley <laughs> because he complains about the thirty second max sprints, twelve yeah. seconds on. He's just like, can't you just give me a red zone run? <laughs> I'm like, no, you are heavyweight. Yeah. You need to deal with high levels of acidosis, yeah. especially like Fabio being 
really explosive. And AJ is like that type as well. Um, you know, he's very fast switch, very yeah. powerful, explosive athlete. <clears throat> you need to be able to deal with them kind of and spikes in acidosis. And yeah. that's what we've seen in the past where he's potentially loaded up against, uh, let's say, Dillian White, where he gassed a little bit, um, really high pace as well. Uh, against Klitschko as well, that famous fifth round to the sixth round. Um, and yeah, just put putting that effort in. And you can see that he has adapted his his ways to be able to go around the 12-round distance now. Yeah. You see against Ruiz, um, that was more technical. Um, against Usyk, that was more technical as well. Yeah. And he boxed really well. Um, he probably tried to box too well against the boxer. Uh, but physically, you can see that he's coping with that high pace a lot better. Um, going to like that Klitschko fight where we've kind of discussed this when we're discussing about AJ's weight, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But he was around about 250 against Takam 254. He got a lot of criticism, he was getting too big. And we said that basically the reason why he's looking like he's getting stamina issues is potentially because he's not controlling the bout as well as what he could do. Um, it's going very low and then having a spike yeah. in kind of punch output. So against Klitschko from round four to round five, round five where he knocked Klitschko down, he jumped up 40% and the majority of this was due to power punches and trying to get Klitschko out of there. Obviously, it took a lot of damage from that round as well. Mm. Um, we saw a similar one against Usyk. We saw a 38% increase from round four to round five. It was hitting below the average and then went, boom, went to 38% increase. But the difference is, is that it kept it quite high. Um, I put that down to one, not taking as much damage as what I did against Klitschko and also not loading up as much. Mm. But we're saying about like kind of what we can do from a strength and condition perspective to be able to control that them spikes in acidosis. But what we're saying there with the pacing strategies have been really important. We're wanting to try and minimize the percentage increase between round round by round. Now, what physical kind of responses do you get when you spike that intensity just like like that, like from round round four to round five? Yeah, physical physical and perceptual. We never yeah. we never you know, people rarely talk about the interaction between the two. Um, but you need to launch an attack. You can't launch an attack from the, the lowest level platform. Yeah. You need to, you need to build that up. So you launch an attack from a, mm. from a high platform. Um, that has a technical and strategic advantage as well because you're, you're, you're working through the gears as mm. you do that. And, you know, you, you're perhaps identifying opportunities to exploit your opponent's weaknesses as you, as you do step up the gears. Mm. That also minimizes that shock that the body's going to receive yeah. from going, it, it, compared to if you go from a, a low baseline to a high baseline. Mm. So when we talk about perception, when we talk about performance, performance is dictated by perception mm. and your perception has various inputs to it. So, and we can talk about this when we come on to, to the heat as well, but your, you will, your performance and your intensity will be dictated by how well you feel 
So your 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 motivation or your drive to produce an intensity will be dictated by well, is this hard or is this is this easy? Where where should it be? Mm. And boxers will intuitively know where that level is. So they'll mm. they'll set a high a high bar. They'll know when they're going above that level of intensity or that that perceived exertion. They'll know when they're below. They can choose when to go high. They can mm. choose when to when to go low. So it's different to a lot of other sports um, because they can manipulate, especially in professional boxing, where that change in in, in pace mm. and that variation is important. It's different to like running or cycling, where you know you've you've got to hit a certain intensity. Mm. Like if you're doing your park run, you know it's going to be yeah. hard to very hard all the way around. Mm. If you're doing your or if you're doing your five k. Whereas in professional boxing, there always is, is some some variation in that. Um, so things like, I mean, you're not wearing a heart rate monitor when you're, when you're mm. boxing, mm. but you do know, you can feel how fast mm. your heart is beating. Mm. Anyone who's, who's trained out or, you know, you know, done a bit of boxing training, you know that how hard your heart is beating, that has a perceptual input. Mm. The biggest perceptual input is in terms of breathlessness. Mm. And when we talk about perception, we usually uh, assess it on a scale. Mm. Uh, that scale was created by Gunnar Borg. Mm. And if you look into the details of the Borg scale, actually a lot of it relates to breathlessness. Mm. So your ventilatory, ventilatory rate, so how deeply you're breathing, your respiratory rate, how quickly you're breathing will determine your perception this is where I also think body shots are really important mm. because if you can land body shots and those body shots are doing damage, you're also creating damage around those um, ventilatory mm. muscles. Yeah. So your intercostals, for example, um, and your diaphragm. And you know, if you get get one in the solar plexus mm. and you're you're winded, mm. that's re that really does change the way that you feel about your your breathing rate and your perception. Mm. So what that will do is that will cause your perception to go up. Mm. If perception goes up and it's mm. higher, mm. then something has to happen to bring it back down to where mm. you think it needs to go. And the only thing that can happen is a reduction mm. in output mm. there. So the other thing that plays into, into this is when those spikes are occurring as well. Mm. So we have a pacing strategy mm. and everyone has pacing strategies whether yeah. you know you you're doing a bit of work if you're a student and you've got an assessment mm. you'll start off and i've given you a a, a really exciting well, i think it's an exciting mm. assessment to do yeah. and a student's gone away and they've gone this is brilliant assessment and they've cracked on with it and then they've, they've gone and found some literature and they're reading through it and think yeah oh, well, this is this is hard to understand so then the, the pace drops off and then they get disinterested and then the handing date looms mm. and then, then pick up the intensity, get it finished and, and submit it. It happens if you're you know doing housework, you start off thinking, right, I've got to do this, this housework, clean the kitchen because I don't want to do it. It's a boring job. It's rubbish. So you start off fast and then you form pings yeah. and you get distracted. And then you think, oh, I need to finish this now because it's, it's gone too long. And then you increase your pace. The same happens in performance as well especially in running especially in cycling in that there's a fast start yeah followed by a dip in the middle and then a 
and then, and then you see the fishing, you see the finish line, finish, see yeah. the finish line, and you and you pick up the pace. If there is a disruption to perception mm. in that middle part of the activity or performance, that will influence um, performance more than it would do at the start or at the end, because at the in the middle of the performance, you get this dip, which yeah. is your brain saying, what level of intensity can I produce to complete this task with the minimal amount of physiological and psychological disruption? And so it's a protective mechanism. So if you then add intensity in that part, or your opponent imposes a demand in that middle part of the task, that's going to increase mm. perception. And later on, that's going to have an influence into punch output yeah. and into intensity. So as well as the, the physical demands of increased cardiovascular demand, um, increased uh, breathlessness, um, probably some change in acidosis and a spike in, in acidosis mm. um, and consequent demands to, to try and mm. reduce that acidosis through oxidative metabolism. Um, you've also got your perceptual inputs and then you've got your psychological inputs yeah. on, on top of that. So it's, it, it's not as simple as it might seem on the surface because there are different, there are multiple layers of inputs to perception. Yeah. So when people talk about or they've gassed out, mm. I see that comment as being one dimensional and mm. focused only on cardiorespiratory aerobic fitness. Yeah. When we know that there are multiple forms of fitness and multiple integrators yeah. to fitness and performance as well. Yeah. And I think that you say, like looking at the numbers there, talk about the middle rounds, AJ did step it up but it didn't necessarily land more. Yeah. And Usyk, like, probably made him work a little bit harder there. And then 7, 8, and 9, that's where Usyk had a lot of success. And then 11 and 12, step, stepped it on the gas again. So that probably made it harder. And as well, working at that intensity and working with uh, fighting somebody that's going to be creating questions and yeah. creating different dimensions all the way through the fight that always seemed a lot harder for AJ. And that's what, what Bellew said as yeah. well. He was just mentally fatigued because yeah. he kept having to think, what is he going to be doing next? Yeah. And that perception yeah. is a lot different to, to the, the physiological. Um, Jordan said something really good the other day uh, when we were talking about being in championship level fights. And he said that when you go at 100 mile an hour in a car, which you shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, uh, we don't condone that. But um, when you go, well, sorry, if you go at 70 miles an hour in a car straight away, <laughs> right, so we go 70 miles an hour, but then, that seems really fast. But if you take that up to 100 mile an hour, that'll seem really fast. But when you come back down to 70, yeah. it's still as fast as what you were going before, mm -hmm. but it seems a lot slower because you've been up to that level. Yeah. So now... AJ could do exactly the same amount of training, the same, come in at the same weight, do the same level of kind of intensity in terms of punch output and everything. And he won't find it as 
tough because he's already been there. So let's say if he thinks, if he, and I, I do know he actually works with performance analysts and everything, they'll be looking at kind of these numbers and everything. If he takes that down to, let's say, his second highest punch output, which was 450, reducing it by about 30%, he's going to feel full of energy and unable to put on. Yeah. Usyk style is constantly fainting and stuff, and that's the reason why he's so successful. So it's going to be interesting to see how they both deal with the with the demands and was and as well talk about the heat demands and 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 the weight as well. Uh, we'll talk about the weight first. Um, you know, we talked about AJ's weight. It's come down from two fifty two five four about two four five against. Ruiz and then because when he lost to Ruiz he thought right I'm going to drop down my weight since then Ruiz 237 it's gone up to 240 for his last two fights it seems like he's settling around about there but the physical difference in his physique compared to when he fought Klitschko is, is massive mm. massive difference um, how what because even though it's a big difference it's, it's 10 pounds which is less than 5% yeah. body mass difference. What significance does that actually have on his fitness compared to what he's kind of taking away? He's probably taking away some strength, some power. Yeah. Some, he's probably not doing as much strength training to keep on that mass and he's focusing more on fitness. But how much work does he actually have to do to make that impactful? I think it comes down to, there's obviously... A, a metabolic cost that is associated with each one of those uh, activities, mm. you know, your jabs and your, your feints and your, your footwork. So that you have to be able to understand where that energy is coming from, what likely intensity that those activities are going to be and factor that into, into your training. Mm. So yes, you, you, you could be, lighter but that change in in body weight needs to be put in perspective to the strategy but also what you're doing in your in your conditioning as well mm. so if the goal of being lighter is to move around more or throw more shots you also have to think about okay so how am i going to support those demands from a metabolic perspective yeah. what is the best where is it, is it best for us to to place our focus on to be able to support those metabolic demands and so you can't get away from the fact that it's still a high intensity sport mm. so thinking okay so we need to do we need to do more fitness now and go on long road runs mm. that's not going to cut it no because that's still that's not supporting the the physiological demands of the sport, which is a high, it's a high intensity intermittent sport. So you can't just go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to drop weight and then I'm just going to do a lot of road running mm. and that's going to help me one, lose a little bit more weight because I'll be in a, in a, a greater negative energy balance. Mm. And it's also going to help my, my fitness as well. It needs to still be supported with, with high intensity. Yeah, conditions. So and the day is still two hundred and forty pounds. Yeah, still a big guy, it's six foot six. Nice. Yeah, full muscle. Yeah, you're saying about like kind of the like when we're looking at Ruiz and like the amount of weight drop that he did. Like, how impactful would that be on his his VO two max, his relative VO two max? 
Yeah. And and it's like you're taking away probably a lot of strength, but you're not actually increasing yeah. your VO2, VO2 max that well. Yeah. So you're not really in, improving that fitness. Yeah. You're more, I, I, th- I think personally, like, I think that you could perform better around about two, four, three, two, four, five. So a little bit heavier, get that little bit stronger. I think he looks like he's, he's put on a bit of mass yeah. uh, based off like the videos and what, I, what I've seen as well. Actually, they've been qu- both quite secretive about the training mm. this time. We haven't really seen a lot, but I mean, kind of like his, the photos and being at press conferences and stuff like that. It looks like he's put on a bit more, a bit more mass. And I think that the, the strength training and being physically imposing will benefit AJ more by being that little bit heavier. You've just got to have the fitness to be able to deal with that. The so right type of fitness. The right type of fitness. And that's what we've been working with Fabio Warther with. Um, I can't remember numbers off the top of my head, but he's uh, put on around about six kilos um, since joining the Boxing Science Programme. And he's gone up bit by bit. He hasn't gone up, boom, six kilos straight away, putting on six kilos of lean mass. He's gone half kilo, kilo at a time. Mm-hmm. And now he's strong and fit and able to take them physical characteristics to heavier weight. And that's what you need to, that's what you need to. So bigger, the, the bigger that you are is often better as, as long as you're yeah. conditioning yourself. Yeah, that's, and they're, that's they're the challenges that Usyk has when yeah. it's been creeping up. Obviously we're under 200 pounds when he was boxing at cruiserweight um, and he's gone up 215 yeah. uh, against um, Chisora. Yeah. And then he's, it was 220 against AJ. And mm. what people are saying from what they've seen at the press conference, it looks even bigger now. So it's yeah, going to be interesting to see what he is. I think he's going to come in about 224, I think. So 224, 225, just a few pounds heavier. Um, you know, what kind of what kind of things that does, does he need to focus on? Like if yeah. he's gone from... He's gone heavier. Gone heavier. Yeah. <clears throat> again, pacing. Again, yeah. It's just it's like thing. if he is... And one of the things that we do focus on quite a bit is the... I mean, it doesn't matter so much with a, with a heavyweight, but... Mm. When do they hit their fight weight in fight camp? Mm. So how far away from from fight night do they hit their target weight? And so how much sparring can they do yeah. at that weight as well? Because without having that information in sparring, and we know that AJ mm. will record his sparring and yeah. he will have video analysts have a yeah. look at his, his sparring. Um, but you need that information in order to make a good decision about how um, that mass is affecting or changing performance. Mm-hmm. And then you can start to make some decisions about um, the type of condition. I mean, you can make educated guesses fairly early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Usyk, Usyk creeping up in, in weight, he's got to make the same considerations yeah. that Joshua has had to make previously. Yeah, yeah throughout his career. Throughout it, you know, throughout his career. Um, and they're a, they're a smart camp. They're yeah. a smart camp. They'll, they'll know this. Usyk's smart. Yeah, yeah. And he, he knows better than every anyone base how is he covered. feels. Yeah, yeah, every base is covered. He knows, he knows how he feels. Mm. Um, he knows what, you know, at what weight he feels best at. 
And what he shouldn't look to do is is try and second guess what what Joshua is going to do. Mm. And Usyk should should play to his own own strengths. Yeah, I think, um, and be his economical self. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. This fight would be interesting if it was in this car park, <laughs> but it's not taking places of this car park. It normally take place at somewhere like Wembley or Tottenham Stadium like last time. But this time it's in Saudi Arabia, uh, in Jeddah, um, in the summer. Uh, you've been having a look at some of the mm-hmm. environmental um, implications that, uh, that this might have on, on the fight. Um, do you want to yeah. explain like kind of what the heat is there at the minute in August? Hot. Very hot. <laughs> it's very hot. Um, That's the end of the video. End of the so, podcast. <laughs> so uh, the fight will take place in the Jeddah Superdome, yeah. which is an air-conditioned stadium. Yeah. So the heat might not be a factor at all. Um, How can you air-condition a stadium that big? I don't big? know. I have no idea. It could mm. be it could be packed with thirty five thousand people, mm-hmm. and it could be air conditioned to I don't know twenty degrees Celsius. I don't I don't know what it will be air conditioned to. Yeah. Um. But what I think is that like the same question: How can you air condition that? Like, surely it's must. It's open air. Stress. It's open air still. Isn't no, it? no, it's a dome. Oh, is it a dome? Yeah, is yeah, it it's a dome? Um. So how can you air condition for a stadium mm. that big when the environmental temperature outside mm. is is so high mm. and i just think it's gonna break <laughs> yeah it's gonna be under so much stress what if it well, breaks that's that's what happened um fight island with uh not fight island it was 2019 when it happened um what's his name khabib all right oh, well, i can forget khabib's name <laughs> versus poirier yeah uh, the ufc in 2019 they're did it? Yeah, and it was boiling, absolutely boiling. All the fighters were just like, "I can't, we can't cope yeah, with this oppressive. heat, like fighting in this heat." So you know, the, this is something that could happen. It, you could, gotta... it could happen. Um, you never know what could happen. They might have to. There the, the could be any number of possibilities. There could be a security scare, mm. you know, somehow, and they've got to tighten up on their security and move the fight mm. to another location mm. that is open air. Mm, There's yeah. all sorts that could yeah, that yeah. could happen. Um, you know, mechanical things, you know, um risks to to human health and yeah. you know harm. Any anything could happen. Um at the end of the day you're fighting it's still fighting in a hot country. Exactly, you're still fighting um, in a hot country. Yeah. So I've looked at the the, the weather conditions um the predictions for uh, the 20th of, of August. So I've looked mm. at historical temperature data. I've looked at the, the temperatures and humidity for the exact date from last year as well. Yeah. And there's a, when you look at like the overview of the, the temperature, mm. it gives you these descriptive, these, these qualitative indicators of how hot the, the temperature is. Mm. And the, for that point, for, August, the uh, description for Jeddah is sweltering. Sweltering. <laughs> the so science. It's not just hot. It's they heard it from Dr. Heat himself. <laughs> it's sweltering. The prediction is sweltering um, in terms of temperature. In terms of um, humidity, it's at least muggy. 
Mugging, yeah. <laughs> so what kind of, what temperatures are there in, in Celsius? It's about 40, 45? Yeah, through the day, through the day, it's around 40 degrees mm. Celsius with like an extremely high solar load as well. Um, humidity is higher um, um, in the morning and then in the evening as well. So if we if we base the, the fight time on Ruiz Joshua, mm-hmm. um, quite that late. Was, that was midnight. Yeah, Saudi time. Um, really cold, actually. Yeah, it was cold because that was December. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are if you so so August is sweltering mm. and muggy. Mm. Um, but that doesn't tell us anything about what's going to happen mm. on the day. So the, the the temperature at midnight outside is predicted to be about 32, anywhere between 30 and 32 degrees Celsius. So hot. Yeah, with a humidity of about 50 to 60%, mm-hmm. which is oppressive. For, yeah. for Europeans, Yeah, that's hot. Mm. Um. In December, which is when Ruiz Joshua was, yeah. it was cool at that time. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't cold, but it was. It was outdoor. It was cool. Um, so much more manageable. Yeah. So you can't make comparisons. Yeah. Um, for the two, unless we unless we say, okay, it's going to be an aircon stadium that's going to be similar to the conditions. Yeah. For for Ruiz, how how does that impact? The performance and in terms of like let's say air conditioned is is all gonna be fine. Leading up to it, it's gonna be hot. Yeah. Usyk's been training in Dubai more yeah. or less all the time because obviously what's happening in in, uh, in his country. Um and then Joshua has gone out to Saudi Arabia with four weeks to go. Who's at the advantage here? Depends on what they're doing when they're in there, doesn't it? One thing being there, <laughs> yeah. but then is actually what are you actually what are you actually doing, what are you actually doing when you're there? Yeah, um, and preparing for those specific conditions. Mm. So you could there's the huge advantages from having a heat acclimation strategy. Yeah, whether you're in a temperate condition or whether you're in a, a hot condition and mm. actually the the research is equivocal yeah um but it's probably always you know mm. if you can get the level of intensity that you need in training there's probably always more um reward from doing heat acclimation training than than not just in in case plus athletes get hot in competition yeah anyway um so that's the research um by the way but um, you know, you know yourself in the Middle East. Mm. It's hot when you're outside mm. walking from yeah. building to building, yeah. but because it's so hot, mm. you in, see in the air conditioned buildings because yeah. it's it's much more more comfortable. Mm. So although the training camps might be in the Middle East, yeah, they might be predominantly in, in an air con- air conditioned, yeah. Um. So in that respect, it's probably not going to do any good. No. I remember when um, I was in Vegas with Kel, we were at the, the top-ranked gym, mm. which is not air-conditioned one bit. It might be now. Eight, eight years. Now. <laughs> yeah, eight years, yeah. 
and it was 38 degrees mm. outside it was absolutely roasting in mm. there i took the i took the temperature inside and it was 32 degrees i think if not pushing mm. 35 degrees no air circulation no. at all so it was really on you and, yeah. he, and he was in there for three weeks yeah training in yeah. those you know sparring in those conditions mm. which it wasn't a focus of the camp but as a byproduct it probably got some some benefit from yeah. doing that sean porter was training in his air-conditioned yeah gym nice yeah, nice, um, and comfortable. nice and comfortable. Nice and comfortable. So, like, even though Usyk and Joshua have gone out there, if they're in comfort in terms of like being air conditioned, they won't actually get the heat acclimation work that they're seeking from being there. No. How? What would you do then? Would you say like to train probably at night, like where it's going to be safer to train, but still have that heat acclimation where it's thirty-two degrees? High humidity. I mean, this is this is another consideration that you've got that they've got to make. For us, it's not mm. normal to box mm. at twelve o'clock at night. No, no. You know, to, you know, ring walks for AJ of what normally ten, ten thirty. Yeah, yeah. Same with same with Usyk when the, the headlining cards. So, um, although it doesn't sound much of a a difference 10 30 till till 12 it probably will make quite a bit of difference mm. in terms of their circadian rhythms so if they can train in an evening mm. more specific to their fight time that would be better from a circadian rhythm perspective yeah um but yeah like you say as well the conditions at that time on an evening outdoors are much more manageable yeah than earlier in the day midday for example where these guys would step out for 10 minutes mm. and just feel completely drained mm. in those conditions so it, it, it's choosing the time of day that's more specific to the fight and perhaps going to be more specific to the conditions that they might have to box in mm. if there was something wrong with the yeah. superdome yeah. so i think you, you're spot on by saying training later in an evening yeah you know and and inducing some some heat and getting used to that heat yeah in terms of in terms of the physiological adaptations that are induced through heat acclimation their impacts will actually be minimal yeah on their ability to lose heat mm. now that ability is dictated by their sweat rate they're big, big guys. They're used to sweating a lot. So their mm. sweat rate will be super high. Mm. But it's no good in having a super high sweat rate if you can't dissipate heat to the environment. And the things that contribute to that heat dissipation or determine that heat dissipation are environmental temperature and humidity. Mm. The hotter it is, the more water vapor that can be stored in that environment. Mm. The more water vapor there is, the higher the pressure of that water vapor is on the skin. So for evaporation to work off the skin surface, mm. there needs to be a pressure gradient and a large pressure gradient. So the pressure of the water on the skin surface needs to be higher so you can get that diffusion yeah. and you can get that evaporation rather. Evaporation, evaporation yeah. of uh, heat off the, the skin surface because yeah. there's a gradient somewhere for that water to go into the atmosphere but because the 
the heat and the humidity is so high, mm. that pressure just sitting here, making yeah. it much more difficult to, to evaporate. Sweat, yeah, sweat to evaporate. So that avenue of cooling mm. becomes much limited. One of the, the temperature me metrics that we use um, to determine how thermally stressful an environment is, is something called the wet bulb globe temperature. Mm. That's something for you to practice. Yeah. Mate. <laughs> um, the wet bulb globe temperature takes into account solar radiation. Mm. It takes into account air temperature in the shade, mm. takes into account humidity, and it takes into account air speed. Mm. And like I said, when you're thinking about evaporation, um, the air temperature is important, humidity is important. In terms of convection, so airflow against the skin, that can help um, mm. remove heat as well. So that takes in, into account um, that air um, speed metric in wet bulb globe temperature. That, if, you, if we do a crude estimation, it's around about 25 degrees Celsius. Yeah. For midnight outdoors mm -hmm. in Jeddah. Now, when you produce energy, you also produce heat. And as humans, we're really inefficient. Mm. And surprise, surprise, there's mm. no research that has been done on the, the efficiency of uh, a heavyweight boxer. Yeah. So we don't know how efficient they are. But even in the most efficient, economical of of situations we're probably only about 20 percent 25 percent efficient which means that 80 percent of the energy that we produce goes as heat and only 20 percent is used as effective mechanical work so we've got this bulk of metabolism mm. that's creating heat that heat needs to go somewhere it needs to get from the muscles it needs to get into the blood it needs to be circulated to the skin and then it needs to be that heat needs to be dissipated mm -hmm. so that has a cardiovascular demand it has a thermoregulatory demand um, because of the the requirements of um, vasodilation of the skin and of, of sweating as well now heavyweights are big big people as well so their rate of metabolism is also super high mm -hmm. And so what we'll do with those two metrics, wet bulb globe temperature and metabolic rate, is we'll look at whether or not they combine to create a compensable environment or an uncompensable environment. In a compensable environment, we can evaporate and we can use heat loss mechanisms um, to control body temperature until you get to a certain wet bulb globe temperature where the environment then makes that situation uncompensable. The heat loss mechanisms cannot then attain a steady state in, in core temperature if you maintain a steady metabolic rate. So what happens then is core temperature, body temperature starts to go up and that's where things start to go wrong. So for both boxers, if they were to compete outdoors, even at midnight, 32 mm. degrees Celsius, 50% humidity, for their metabolic rate, mm. their environment would be uncompensable. Mm. So there's only one thing that can happen there, and that's for them to reduce their output. Mm. So that's where shot selection, if that was to happen, shot selection is super important because yeah. as we mentioned, every 
shot that they take has a metabolic cost. So in those situations, do you really want to be fainting a lot? Yeah. Especially with a jab. Faint with your feet, might be yeah. more economical. Faint with your head, might be more, might be more economical. Mm. But throwing a jab, missing, that's not economical. It's not effective work. Yeah. Um, closing your opponent down, throwing a power shot. Yeah. Although it might be more metabolically costly in the overall scheme of things, it might be more mechanically effective. It might be more effective from a performance standpoint. Another thing that I think would be effective, which would be really boring mm. from from a spectator point of view, is that AJ could use his size and height advantage and just press down on Usyk mm. and just hold him. Well, a lot of people thought that they should have done that in yeah. the first fight. Yeah. With the heat demands being quite high and humidity and all the stuff that you just talked about there, that having an impact, that could yeah. be even more effective. Massively effective. Really boring. But something that Fury does really, really well. Yeah. But uh, and I'm sure he looks at wet, wet, <laughs> what is it? Wet bulb globe wet bulb, temperature. Wet bulb globe temperature. I'm sure Fury looked at that and <laughs> yeah, I thought, decided, oh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lean on people. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But things like, you know, this, the amount that the, the temperature will play in, in strategy mm. shouldn't be underestimated if, mm. it, if it has to, to change. And, or something, something happens with the with the aircon in the in the stadium has a massive implications. Huge. Yeah, interesting, really interesting. Mm. Let's see what see what happens. We'll see. Uh, August twentieth. So yeah, it's been been great to pick your brains on stuff from a physiological standpoint. Obviously, with the heat and everything like that. Um, let's see what happens with uh, Usyk Joshua too going to be interesting. Yeah. Predictions. Our predictions. I'll go AJ Matt. win. What based on? Based on that, based upon the fact that, like you're saying, at 100 mile an hour, he had to, mm. he had to fight against mm. Usyk. And I actually, he boxed the best he's ever boxed. Yeah. So he's made some massive improvements in the way that he can, he can box. And so I think he's added more to his game there. Yeah. We also know that he could add more physicality into yeah. his game as well. How much better can AJ get compared to how much exactly. better can Usyk get? Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Like, for me, like, before, before we went into all this, I was thinking Usyk because skill for skill, Usyk's better. And... Physically, the, obviously, AJ's taller, he's 20 pounds heavier. But in relative terms, 20 pounds heavier in the heavyweight division isn't as mm. big as what 20 pounds is when you're against featherweight versus a middleweight. Um, but it's talking about this, like saying about like how much AJ can get better from a pacing perspective. From physical perspective, obviously he's changed boxing trainers now and, yeah. and they've learned how to cope with the demands of what Usyk brings. And also, he's he's been around different camps as well. Yeah, yeah. He's learned, gone around. Picking, he's literally gone around the world, hasn't he? Picking yeah. up, picking up bits. He's learned, um, probably learned loads. I think obviously the what's going off with um, 
Usyk's country at the moment, that could have a big factor on, on Usyk. Um, and take a lot away. It can it can either distract or it can it can empower I somebody. Think, no, uh, like looking from the outside, yeah. something like that would just empower. You mm. think? Yeah, and then it's it's basically it's shit or bust for AJ as well because yeah. if he loses the rematch, then you know when's his next shot? Obviously, he needs to win the rematch, and then he gets fury, get gets back on top. Um, He's going to want it more than ever. Mm. And it looks like he's been putting in the work. Yeah. Um, and all the environmental implications in as well could limit the, the amount of work that Usyk does, which will help AJ. Yeah. Yeah. So I might still sit on the fence. <laughs> <laughs> might still sit on the fence. Uh, yeah, I, th I think I still like kind of edged, edged towards Usyk, mm. but I'm more favoured now toward, like, towards AJ before we, we looked at it and that's that's why we're do, doing this conversation hopefully mm -hmm. that helps some people as well they might one thing that's really important change. mate mm. is momentum and this this not the the physical construct of momentum yeah. like we'd explain yeah. science behind a punch but the, the you know this the, the psychological momentum yeah. And Usyk had psychological momentum yeah. when he beat Joshua. Yeah. But because of the period of time and what's happened in between mm -hmm. the first fight and this fight. Which is nearly a year now. Yeah. Um, that momentum will have slowed yeah. severely. Heavyweights are completely different mm animals to normal human beings so when they get a little bit of confidence yeah their their rising confidence is exponential mm. and their fearlessness is exponential compared mm. to normal human beings yeah so we would we would still have a degree of trepidation i have trepidation wherever <laughs> yeah i still have i still see risk wherever yeah but heavyweights are these top level heavyweights are, are, are different and AJ is different to where, what he appears, you yeah. know, in, in the media. Um, and I just think he's got, he's, he's now got the momentum yeah. from all those things that you just mentioned and having, he's probably got a lot more confidence back. And I think he, even though he lost, there's loads, there's still loads of confidence he can mm. take from, from that yeah. fight. Loads. And plus, he's you know he's he's yeah, he's got his history in his back pocket. Yeah. Mm. So it's interesting. It's interesting. Can't wait for the fight now. Yeah. There we go. So, so that's the end of the video. Thank you very much for watching. Uh, if you stuck with us for all this time, uh, we're going through the science behind AJ versus Usyk. Sorry, Usyk versus Joshua too. Um, now leave your predictions below. Us. Have we swayed your prediction? And yeah. Let's look forward to August 20th. I'm, I'm buzzing for it now. So hopefully see you on the next video.